From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Wednesday afternoon means it is time for us to check in with Claire Newell with Travel Best Bets. Claire, good afternoon to you. Oh, good afternoon, Jill. I'm looking out the window at the rain and thinking, "Hmm, I'd like a holiday. Yes. (laughs) Every every time I hear that (laughs) intro music, I'm like, yeah. When it rains, it really, really hits home. (laughs) It sure does. And uh, there is a a new one if people want to go somewhere a little warmer. Yeah, this was a new announcement that just came down. Um, Flair Airlines, which is one of the ultra-low-cost carriers here in Canada, they announced that they're going to be flying two times a week between Vancouver and Guadalajara, Mexico. And that's going to start May 31st. They do say that they have to obtain the required permits from civil aviation authorities, but normally that is just kind of a formality. And one of the other things that uh, was listed in the announcement that came out that I read was that there will be uh, in the summer of 2024 a 33% increase in service to Abbotsford Airport and that's going to just ensure that um, there'll be continued low-cost options for the lower mainland. I know a lot of people who live almost all the way out to Chilliwack and even past that Um, and you know if if you're over the Portman Bridge people love to leave from there. It's easy. It's a smaller airport. It's got easy parking and your bags come off really fast. So um, that was good news from Flair Airlines just coming down the pipe. Yeah, and that is uh, always good things when things go smoothly at uh, a smaller a smaller airport option. Um, let's yeah. also talk. So Air Canada is also talking about expanding, and this is, uh, I would imagine, on a lot of lists of a lot of people uh, to Scandinavia. Yeah, no question. This one didn't really surprise me. Being in the industry, I've seen so much uptick in interest in Scandinavia. I think once Russia became a no-go zone, you know, people used to go up to the Baltic region and then really stop in at St. Petersburg. But the area that has kind of taken over that kind of demand has been Scandinavia, particularly the Norwegian fjords. Um, But Air Canada announced that they're going to be doing a strategic expansion into Scandinavia with new summer seasonal flights to Stockholm. Unfortunately, they won't be out of Vancouver. They'll be three times a week out of Montreal and twice a week out of Toronto starting mid-June of next year. But what's great is that you'll be able to connect really smoothly with an Air Canada flight from Vancouver to one of those cities. They will also be increasing capacity on their year-round Copenhagen flights from uh, Toronto with daily flights beginning May 1st, right through until October 31st, so that popular Europe summer season. So this is going to be interesting um, because I think you're right. I think it's on a lot of people's bucket list now. All right, so that is good news for anybody wanting to head to Scandinavia. What's happening with the Hyatt? There's some news there. Yeah, when I read this, I was um, I was quite surprised um, with the the massive expansion that Hyatt is going to be doing here in Canada. They're on track to double their brand footprint here by 2026. So it's really fast. Right now, they have nearly 20 hotels that are open here in Canada, but they hope to have an additional 23 hotels open and operating by the end of 2026. So that will dub- more than double uh, their their footprint. I just kind of read through the list of properties and did notice that there will be three, at least three new ones here in BC. One of them will be the Hyatt-centric in Victoria, and then two in Vancouver, both Hyatt Place 
and Hyatt House. So if you collect points or you love the Hyatt properties, some really, really good news coming, especially here in Canada, if you like to travel here. All right. And uh, Airbnb and other short-term rentals certainly have been in the news a lot lately. And uh, a lot of people are still booking with those services. Yeah, record, record numbers. Um, In the first quarter of 2023, they were up by 113 million bookings. So an increase of 14% for the same period. So yeah, they've they've also added about um, a million active listings in 2023 so far. So it's it's been interesting because in the news you hear of places, including Vancouver and New York, where they're really kind of um, cutting back on Airbnb, there's all sorts of stipulations. The actual homeowner has to be there and they can't, I mean, there's just so many things, but make, which makes it really expensive in those cities sometimes during peak season or over really, really popular dates. Like when Taylor Swift comes to town, um, it's harder to find places because there's not as many Airbnb listings when there's more restrictions, but it is not stopping people from looking at Airbnb as an option. And, you know, even my own daughter who headed over to Europe this past summer, um, well, it wasn't even that this past summer, it was actually in late September, early October, and she was traveling with two other of our family members, and three in a room is really, really hard in Europe, so they looked to Airbnb, and they found really great locations in many cities all over Italy, where it was really it was an affordable great option for them so it's no surprise this whole you know sharing um world we're starting to see it in cars too with turo it's 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 good it's good for people and it seems like airbnb at least is is hearing that from people as well because uh, I, I understand too that oh i think starting today more options if you've got pets or other if you're looking for specific things like you said your daughter three people or if you're looking for those specific amenities yeah and that's one of the things that was on their uh, thing uh, list of agenda to complete this year and they are releasing it is it's actually the 8th the, the today so um, you'll be able to find all sorts of new features on, if you are on their app or on their website. But one um, toggle you mentioned is that you can actually now search for listings that are pet friendly. And I love traveling with my dog. And so that's a, that's an option that I, I would use for sure. And there's others for those who only want king bits. You know, a, a double or a queen is just not an option for them. So um, there's, there's, it will make it a lot easier for you if, to find exactly what you're looking for without having to just kind of read through the fine print of each particular uh, property that comes up. And this is something that we have talked about before. People either love this or are very, very hesitant about it, but facial recognition systems. And Jill, whether you're totally opposed to it or whether you will, you know, accept this no problem like me, it's coming. And Frankfurt Airport is the first major airport that I've seen that has introduced facial recognition throughout all of their terminals. And this came after a really successful biometric trial with Lufthansa, which that's their their main uh, airport hub. So passengers can now navigate the airport literally from check-in to security and boarding simply by scanning their faces. So you can do it in a couple of ways. You can register in advance through the Star Alliance biometric app, or you can actually do it directly at check-in kiosks. Um, but it is optional right now, but they're planning to equip at least 50% of its kiosks and boarding gates with this technology. So 
IATA, which is the International Air Transport Associations, um, they did a recent global survey for 2023, and it shows that there's a growing traveler preference for biometric identification, 46% having actually used it in the past year, which was an increase of 34% over 2022. It's coming, it's being used, it's being used successfully. And I think the satisfaction rate, because once you've done it and you just scan your face, and you're not pulling out documents, it is simple. It is, and yeah, very, very efficient. So like you said, it is coming, whether uh, people are okay or on board with that or not. Also, uh, if you are worried about sustainability if, when you're traveling and carbon footprint, Southwest Airlines is taking a look at that. They are. And I'm going to preface this by saying, you know, just about a, maybe a week, 10 days ago, um, the head of WestJet came out saying that, you know, the reality is that sustainable aviation fuel is going to be expensive. It's one of those things, like I remember way back, VCRs were like a bajillion dollars and then they were super cheap, you know, like TVs too, like they're so much cheaper than they were. One day it will get to a point where sustainable aviation fuel will be affordable, but Southwest did just sign a deal um, that's going to span 20 years. They're going to buy almost 700 million gallons of SAF, which is Sustainable Aviation Fuels acronym from a company called USA Bioenergy, and it's going to be over the next two decades. They're hoping that they will be able to reach 10%, replacing 10% of their total jet fuel by 2030. And their, their whole goal is to be net zero carbon emissions by 2050. So this is just one step towards that. And it's good to see that these these are going. We know, you know, I've chatted about the fact that there's some, some good um, green initiatives coming. You know, some of the local companies like Helijet and Harbor Air are already buying and starting to test electric vehicles and put, put them in their feet. I know Air Canada has, a, has an order for some as soon as they're available to come in to play, they'll be regional likely to start because of the, the, the distance that they can actually travel. But it's not far off. Um, so it, it is good news. And I think it's really, really important um, moving forward that this be an option for those passengers who feel like it should be top of mind. All right. And one other story just before we get to the deals. And this is for people, if you feel like there aren't enough options for things to watch, Air Canada has some more options on those screens. Yeah, and I love this one because they're offering Disney Plus originals on board. So it, it actually has already started and customers can enjoy a whole selection of all of the Disney Plus original series like Limitless with Chris Hemsworth, Cars on the Road and Zootopia, original movies um, that are out by by Disney. So I think it's uh, for those, especially if you're traveling with kids, this will keep them very happy and hopefully quiet on, on their next Air Canada flights. All right. I, I noticed last time I flew, I was on Air Canada and, and having Apple Plus or Apple TV and all of these yeah. things. There were a lot of options. I, I did not run out of things to watch, which was kind of nice. It's my husband, the kind of road warrior guy who's always on flights are the ones that run out of all the, you know, the new re newly released movies and stuff. So he's going to be really thrilled that this is on there. Um, should we get people traveling? Because there's some really great deals in the marketplace at the moment. Let's do it. What do you have for us? Um, okay, I'm going to start with a seven-night Alaska cruise if you didn't get to do it and it's been on your bucket list. There's a couple of dates that I've got for next year that are the lowest I've seen. Only three dates that I have at this rate. It's April 28th. May the 5th or September 22nd, but a seven night cruise sailing round trip from Vancouver comes with a 50 US dollar onboard credit per cabin, 499 
the taxes are 418. That one is not going to last. Um, if you're planning for spring or summer and you want to head to Europe, I love this deal to Portugal. We used to have one. Do you remember me talking about the self-drive tours to Ireland? Yes. Where everything's yes. all organized? Mm -hmm. Well, this is to Portugal, which has become a real up-and-coming hot destination over in Europe because um, it is one of the more affordable countries to visit once you're actually there. But this gets you there and gets you to stay. So between May 5th, uh, sorry, March 5th and June the 12th, a great time to go. All the crowds are gone and it's not quite as hot um, before those crazy kids get out of school and it gets busy. Um, and then again, September the 17th to 30th. So uh, those are my favorite times to go. But a package including the airfare, it is round trip to Lisbon. It comes with seven nights accommodation. And the places you'll stay, Lisbon, Porto, Fatima, Evora. So great itinerary. Comes with breakfast every day and the car rental. Eleven ninety nine. Hmm. The taxes of uh, seven ninety four. Um, I love that deal. And one hot spot. Do you want that? Sure. Okay. Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. Only three dates. I know they're all in kind of early mid December. December eleventh, twelfth, or fourteenth. But if you can do it, air and seven nights in a four star beachfront all inclusive resort. Seven forty nine. The taxes of 621. So there you have it. Those are my hot spots right now. <laughs> All right. Uh, lots to choose from. Claire, thank you so much. And we'll talk to you again soon. Sounds great. I'll talk to you next week. Well, we know there are a lot of rules when it comes to liquor sales and uh, what you can do if you own an establishment with a liquor license. And there certainly have been a lot of pushes to at least modernize the rules or look at what is on the books and see what's working and what perhaps could be described as a bit archaic. Well, it is those rules that could see an East Vancouver brewery sold. And joining me to talk more about this is Harrison Stoker, uh, Chief Growth Officer with Freehouse Collective, which is formerly the Donnelly Group. Harrison, thank you so much for taking some time today. My pleasure, Jill. Hi there. Uh, so we're talking about Bomber Brewing in East Vancouver, which I'm sure, uh, sure a lot of people are familiar with. But for those who aren't, can you tell us a little bit about Bomber Brewing? Yeah, sure. I mean, Bomber Brewing at this point has uh, achieved near legendary status for how long it's been open. It was opened uh, around 2014, and uh, to go on a, a near 10-year run is, is, is something incredible. Um, it was started by some hockey buddies in the, in the locker room as a means to uh, more or less keep the boys uh, <clears throat> charged and, 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 and full of the right kind of liquids. And it's really evolved since then um, to become a mainstay in uh, Vancouver culture. And it's located in East Van, again, uh, for people if they're not familiar with it, it's it's one of the breweries on Adenac Street in East Vancouver. Um, so how long has, has your company or has Freehouse Collective, again, formerly Donnelly Group, how long have, have you owned the brewery? Uh, we've owned it since late 2018. And and tell me a little bit then, uh, here we are, it is still a very popular craft brewery. It's often very, very busy. So why is there, why has it been put up for sale? Well, we, in 2018 and every year after that, we've always had a, a tremendous relationship with craft beer um, across all of our pubs, restaurants and cocktail clubs. We've got nearly 300 draft beer lines uh, and arguably maybe one of the best partners for the craft sector at large. Um, and so it just really made a lot of sense for us. Not only did we have a very intimate relationship with uh, beer um, and the mechanics of beer and how customers 
uh, enjoyed that. But uh, with the brewers themselves and the industry, and so when you think about perhaps the economic incentive of being able to uh, have a relationship with a brewery that can supply some or all of its beer to your various you know pubs and bars, it, it really makes sense. But um, there is also a, a real cultural opportunity to sort of galvanize our staff around the idea of craft beer. It was such a such an important part of our service philosophy. A great opportunity uh, to give them a more intimate uh, education relationship with the liquid. Right. So that all sounds like everything's working together and that it's a very beneficial relationship. But but I understand that because of of the relationship, I guess, between the company and the brewery, does that 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 does something or, or there are rules then in the liquor laws? Yeah, that's right. There's uh, there's some, it's, all, it's called Tide House and it's a rule that more or less has applied to small to medium sized manufacturers uh, with any uh, interest in them from those with sales licenses. So a pub to a brewery in our case. Um, and so we're only permitted to serve that beer in a maximum of three of our locations. Um, so it's a little counterproductive to those sort of aspirational economic incentives. So even though you own Bomber Brewing and you own all of these other businesses as well, or these other bars, so you, you can only sell Bomber products in three of them. That's right. And perhaps the biggest mistake we made was uh, acquiring it legally and following the rules. Um, there'd be a tremendous economic incentive if we were able to manufacture and, and pour that beer at all of our locations, obviously. And so uh, we're really kind of bookended in uh, by virtue of those regulations um, and the fact that they haven't been reviewed and updated as we had anticipated. Did you know that going in, that once you purchased the brewery, that it would, because I guess that's the irony, isn't it? If you, if you didn't own it, you could sell it in all of your establishments, but because you purchased it, that limits it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we, we, we knew that going in. We, we, were, we certainly weren't naive, um, uh, perhaps hopeful. Um, you know, the idea of, of abolishing that sort of arcane rule uh, had been floated for a long, long time. There's a lot of uh, uh, beer and restaurant associations that have been proactively lobbying uh, against a lack of support for maintaining that policy. Um, and so we were just generally hopeful um, that that was going to be the case. And so when we acquired the brewery and we did it in a very legal and compliant way, uh, which ended up, of course, sort of uh, biting, biting us in the tail end long term. A lot of the liquor rules don't make a lot of sense in this province. What is the reason, though, that was given to you or, or if, when you've tried to ask them why this is a rule that's on the books? What is the, the reasoning behind it? Well, I, that one's pretty simple. I mean, it's, it's, it's really rooted in a sort of anti-monopolistic uh, sort of rhetoric. And uh, if you think about um, sort of access to capital for some very large, you know, macro uh, beer manufacturing institutions, uh, they could very well go buy up, you know, pubs and bars and restaurants. And, um, you know, to a degree, we, we agree with that. We don't, we, we don't want to see a full consolidation across the, the industry. Um, but, you know, that that tied house policy was put in place in the early 1950s. Uh, it, it just simply hasn't aged well. And, it, and it's time for it to be uh, either abolished or updated. Um, there could be some new parameters and conditions set on it that uh, might encourage, uh, you know, some more industry competition and some some healthier economics.
Right. Because even even uh, somebody might love bomber products, uh, there will be people who would prefer something else. So even even if that was a case of it was available in in all 11 bars owned by Freehouse Collective, that that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be uh, that 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 that's going to be a huge game changer, does it? No, absolutely not. I mean, if you take it, if you use us as a case example, on average, uh, our locations will have somewhere in the vicinity of about 20 draft beer, draft beer lines. Um, w- w- there is no way that we would ever uh, put, you know, the lion's share of those through one brand uh, or, or some singular expressions in that regard. That, that just wouldn't be good for our, our guests and our patrons. They'd have no interest in that. They want the diversity. And so, yeah, to your point, uh, if we were permitted to put it into maybe even six or nine and, and you know, create, creating some different conditions, um, it would just be an opportunity for Bomber Brewing to use more of its production capacity uh, and encourage its economics to be, uh, you know, as, as profitable as it should be because it's a great brewery, it's a great brand, and it's run by really talented people. So what happens at this point? It's listed for sale, and is it, is it the, the company is going to sell it if there is a buyer? Yeah, we, you know, the, the brewery, like many breweries in BC, uh, has been sort of discreetly uh, for sale for, for some time. And uh, I, I say in general, and uh, our experience in the industry says that, you know, every every business like this is, you know, available for the right price, the right kind of partnership. And uh, and so we just really, we moved more recently to uh, more of a public listing, um, sort of in the spirit of just sort of accelerating those conversations. And there's a lot of different opportunities for us, whether it's a, a full sale of the asset or maybe a partnership or maybe bringing in uh, some investors who might have some ideas on, on uh, again, utilizing that production capacity and improving the economics. Uh, everything's on the table. Right. Is this in any way, is this part of the restructuring of Freehouse? And again, people uh, will know uh, it was formerly the Donnelly Group uh, and there were uh, some issues as far as restructuring and restructuring debt. Is this part of that or is this completely separate? Uh, well, Bummer Brewing is one of the petitioners of our CCAA financial restructuring. It's not necessarily the catalyst. Um, you know, one of one of the most interesting parts of this journey is how forensic we've been about our financials um, and how more critical we are about the future of those financials. And so we're really trying to make decisions um, that are going to put us in a stronger position long term. And so when you think about this arcane rule that doesn't really permit us to to sort of leverage the economy of scale of owning a brewery, it it just is not sensible for our future vision. Um, We would love to keep the brewery. You know, we would love to partner with somebody even as well if if the rules were to change. Um, But to answer your question, it's both yes and no. The the financial restructuring is really in the spirit of strengthening our balance sheet, uh, which would, of course, benefit from the sale of one of our assets. Uh, But at the same time, if the policy or that rule was to loosen up, those economics really help out our balance sheet as well. Um, so there's no directive from the Supreme Court as it relates to CCAA. This was more of a internal initiative. All right. And and so Harrison, just one other question about this, because I know people in the industry do talk to each other, and, and certainly there have been others that have raised concerns about the liquor laws. Like you said, this one goes back to the 1950s and hasn't been changed. Is there more of a call, do you think, or, or more people that, that would like to see, especially from the industry, uh, the province taking a, a better look at this or a, a look at this and maybe making those changes and, and uh, even working with the industry to figure out which ones really do 
do need to be updated and which rules don't make sense? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think the timing's ever been better in this, uh, you know, call it post-pandemic economic environment. Um, the reality of running restaurant or hospitality businesses today is, uh, and there's some really good statistics on this more recently, it's about 51% of restaurants are operating at a loss currently. Um, we all know full well costs have, have gone up and discretionary in- income and disposable income, uh, you know, people are a little bit more protected of, of it. And so um, there's a bit of a reckoning coming up, notably with uh, the maturation of some of these emergency funding loans, the SIBA loans, mm-hmm. which is uh, happening in, early, in, in mid-January. And um, to a degree, it's something that we anticipated and, and definitely um, one of the reasons that we decided to financially restructure. Uh, the timing is really good to review some of this stuff and as well as some of the uh, tax schedules, you know, in craft beer, the same as it is in wine and distilling. There's some very, very aggressive tax schedules, uh, w- which really thin out the margins uh, on these kind of businesses. And I think that they're culturally incredibly important, uh, as well as economically incredibly important to sort of the fabric of, of British Columbia and, and Canada at large. So lots of opportunity to, to modernize some of this policy. All right. Harrison Stoker, appreciate you taking the time to talk more about this today. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Jill. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being with us on this Wednesday afternoon. Well, Jewish community leaders in Montreal are calling for widespread condemnation of firebombings at two Jewish institutions in that city, saying the incidents are the latest evidence of anti-Semitism in Montreal. We're talking about the firebombings of a Jewish organization as well as a synagogue. Luckily, there were no major injuries, but as you can imagine, this is very upsetting for the community for well for everybody really and joining us now to talk a bit more about this is Dan Moskovitz the senior rabbi at Temple Shalom uh, Rabbi Moskovitz thank you so much for taking the time today Thank you for having me Jill I know this happened in Montreal but certainly uh, there is a lot of reaction to this so what is your response when you hear about uh, these two fire bombings in this Canadian city my, my response is, is utter horror and, and, and uh, truthfully, a great deal of sadness and, and some degree of fear. Uh, there's a police car sitting out in front of my synagogue as there has been since October 7th for the past month, and every Jewish institution in the city here in Vancouver, as I'm sure there are across our country, um, simply so that Jews can go to their houses of worship to pray or to study or to be with their kids in a preschool. Um, we have to be under armed guard because we are Jews. And uh, it is a horrible, horrible thing. And the reality of it is, unfortunately, I think that uh, many uh, in Canada see it as sort of business as usual. Um, and it shouldn't be. It should be absolutely uh, the, the, the most horrendous thing uh, that we could imagine that people of any faith should have to be under armed guard in order to pray or to gather or to study in this country that celebrates freedom and diversity. Has it changed how people who maybe are going to synagogue or who are praying or gathering, has it changed even how they are dressing or presenting, thinking that that if you look a certain way, that could make you a target? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've had many in my community uh, come up to me and tell me that they don't feel comfortable wearing a kippah, a yarmulke, a Jewish head covering as they walk or to put their Jewish star under their shirt if they wear it outwardly like someone might wear a cross or, a, or another uh, religious symbol. 
Um, Jews have a, uh, an amulet on the doorpost of their home called a mezuzah. I think anybody who's ever trick-or-treated or gone in the neighborhoods of Vancouver or anywhere has probably seen them. And I've had members of my community you know, ask or even tell me that they're going to take it down because they don't feel safe. Uh, students are not attending uh, synagogues and schools in as large numbers at times. I think those numbers have come back up. But there have been moments when Hamas and supporters of Hamas have called for you know, days of jihad and rage against the Jewish community, and that has sent a tremor of fear uh, and insecurity uh, across, uh, you know, across the Jewish community, across the country. And and not to give people who are doing this or, or people who are responsible for uh, the firebombings for the attacks in Montreal um, more and more attention, but have there been threats? You mentioned that there is a police car and we've seen uh, the heavier police presence outside of synagogues for the past month. Have there been threats made against your your synagogue or that you know of other of other Jewish communities or, or community centers in B.C.? I don't want to get into specifics other than to say yes. Uh, there have been threats. There have been, um, you know, both um, verbal uh, in-person in kinds of things as well as, you know, phone calls and emails for sure. Uh, and, and some more more serious, more confrontational that we've reported to the VPD. And, and the, the VPD and our political leadership here in the city and the province have been wonderful and incredibly responsive and protective and supportive, as they should not just the Jewish community but of any community that feels itself uh, to be vulnerable or threatened at this time. Uh, there was a oh, sorry. Uh, there was a gathering, and I know you you took part in the gathering and people coming together to support the Jewish community to to support Israel. How important is it to have those gatherings and to see the numbers that show up? You know, it, it's very important, not just for the Jewish community, and we have been really uh, gathering with each other at every moment for the last 30-plus days since October 7th. Of course, we gathered before that for joy and celebration, and now we've gathered in grief and in sorrow and, and tremendous worry over the, the 240 uh, or so hostages that are still being held and, uh, and grieving the, the loss of life, not only in the Jewish community, but the loss of life, the innocence on both sides at the hand of Hamas. Uh, but what has been most en- energizing, what has been most meaningful is not just the Jewish community coming out in support, but the non-Jewish community that have come out to stand with us uh, against this kind of, 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 of atrocity and hatred and violence of targeting of people uh, simply because they are Jewish, simply because they are Israeli. Uh, and the more and more people that come out to stand with us, because many, many have stood out in the streets against uh, the, you know, Israel and, and in favor of, of, of Hamas and, and, and the atrocities that were perpetrated against the, the Jewish people on October 7th. Um, and so the more that come out to stand with us, we don't feel quite as alone and isolated. Uh, you know, we say never again is happening right now. And what we mean by that and what I mean by that is not the six million dead of the, of the, of the Holocaust. That was the outcome. That was the end result. But it began long before that with silence and indifference. Elie Wiesel said the only thing that's necessary in order for evil to prevail is for good people to do nothing. And so those that sit on the sidelines or those that are indifferent to, to what is happening, you are allowing this, this evil and, and, and this hatred and this terrorism to, to persist and prevail. And if it starts with the Jews, it never ends with us. It will continue to others. Um, and so we have to call it out. We have to stand together against it.
Well, and isn't that what we're seeing as well when you you talk about uh, history and also starting with denial and with at the time people saying, well, what are you talking about? That's not happening. That's that's not the case. And we're hearing that again now, uh, even uh, just on Monday, uh, some journalists uh, went to uh, in um, went to uh, the Israeli consulate and were shown they were shown some very graphic video and, and wrote about it very carefully and wrote about it in a way saying, look, this this was released from is, Israeli forces who who came who got this video and even some of the response to that ha, has been people saying well that's not real we don't believe it so how do you counter that it is it is so upsetting and disappointing these are largely footage that was filmed by Hamas they put it up on their own social media they glorified in in the death and the destruction and the rape and the murder that they committed these aren't doctored videos. This isn't AI. This is their own, you know, GoPros on their helmets as they, you know, massacred people at, at music festivals and in, in villages and homes. Uh, just wh- wh- where is the wisdom of humanity? You know, we've managed to survive as a human as, as human beings on this planet because we we ultimately were smart, right? We, we we knew to keep our hand away from fire. We knew not to run out into traffic. You know, we knew what was up and what was down, and and we seemed to check our sense of reason and rationality when it comes to, uh, to, to, to the Jewish community in particular, perhaps, but, but when it comes to these conspiracy theories, you know, we'll believe what anybody says on the internet, we won't believe facts and science and, and, and data. Uh, this happened. There's people that, that, that say 9-11 didn't happen. We know that it happened. We know people that died there. I know people that died in Israel. It, it happened. I, I, I can't, I, I can't begin to understand the, uh, the, the decline in morality and, 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 and wisdom and intellect that would lead somebody to think that something that they saw with their own eyes didn't actually happen. Uh, many of uh, the the leaders uh, in this country, uh, politicians, uh, and, and many around the world uh, are condemning these acts of violence against, specifically against the Jewish community, but also calling for the humanitarian pause, getting aid to people who are still in the region, the, who are still there and, and who are out of food, out of fuel. Uh, do you think that is helpful or is that, that something that, that is supported as far as not calling for a ceasefire? but calling for that humanitarian pause? The, the most humanitarian thing that we could do is to end Hamas's rule over the Gazan people and their, um, uh, their rocket fire and, and their terrorist attacks over the, over the Israeli people. The most humanitarian thing we could do is remove Hamas from the equation. They are not, holding, not only holding 240 Israelis hostage, they're holding the entire population of Gaza hostage. So if a humanitarian pause allows us to get those people in Gaza who are in harm's way because Hamas is keeping them in harm's way or because they don't have the ability to move out of their place where they are to get to relative safety in the southern part of Gaza? Absolutely. But they clearly have enough fuel in Gaza to launch rockets. They've launched 9,500 rockets just this past week. So I I don't support bringing fuel in there, certainly to support generators, but it would have to be of hospitals, but it would have to be well supervised. And we've seen that even with the best of intentions, when the international community brings relief supplies into Gaza, as they have done for the last 17 years, Hamas takes those and weaponizes them into building bunkers, into bombs, into rockets. Um, the, the best thing that we can do is to defeat Hamas, to free Gaza, to free the Palestinians from Hamas, as well as to free the Jewish people and the Israelis from their reign of terror.
And Rabbi Moskowitz, one other question, kind of going back to uh, what we've seen in Montreal, the, the firebombings of, of two Jewish institutions, the, the high alert, as you mentioned, with police stationed outside of synagogues and other areas. I don't know if it's too soon to be thinking about this, although I'm sure people are, in that I think we're only about a month away, is it, from, from Hanukkah? How, how does mm-hmm. that go ahead uh, while this is still happening? Well, this is the nature of our people, right? We've been, uh, the Jewish people have been around for 3,500 years. We have celebrated uh, joyous occasions, weddings and bar mitzvahs, even in the camps of Auschwitz and Birkenau. Um, Hanukkah is a, is a holiday about bringing light in the midst of darkness. Probably at no other time in my lifetime has the light of Hanukkah, a light that celebrates religious freedom and pluralism, been more necessary, not just for Jews, but for the entire world. So not only will we be lighting our Hanukkiot, our menorahs, and our synagogues and our Jewish homes, but I would hope that, that, that those that support this value of, of inclusion, of pluralism, of religious freedom, will light lights either in their own festivals or to join the Jewish community in bringing light to the world at the time of Hanukkah so that we can eradicate the darkness uh, that is enveloping all of us, the darkness of hatred and of terrorism, and truly now, honestly, the darkness of anti-Semitism and indifference anti-Semitism. Rabbi Moskowitz, we'll leave it there for today, but thank you so much for coming back on the show. I appreciate your time. Jill, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till three on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.